Welcome to everybody at home. Welcome to everybody in the fellowship hall and all of you wonderful saints here today. So good to join together. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. And uh, we are excited because today we get to start a new book study and we're continuing on in our series, uh, Letters from Prison, but we jump into the next book now and that's the book of Philippians. So if you want to make your way to Philippians, and if you don't have a Bible with you, if you just want to hold up your hand, because we're going to have our ushers come and bring you a Bible right where you're sitting, keep your hand up, and a Bible will be brought to you. And then make your way to Philippians, right after Ephesians and Philippians. It's such a, a wonderful book. It's got uh, just such warmth and affection to it. There are so many quotable verses in the book of Philippians. This is a kind of a go-to book for many people where they find great uh, encouragement and strength. One more in the back there, yeah. Find great encouragement and strength and uh, just hope in the Lord. And so uh, great quotable, memorizing verses for us here. So good. Well, Paul's the writer of Ephesians, or sorry, of Philippians. We're gonna get used to that now. Philippians, not Ephesians. Paul's the writer of Philippians. And like I said, Paul writes this letter now with such warmth and affection, um, more so than you would really see in some of the other books here. Dr. Edmund Hebert said, Paul's letter to the Philippians is like an open window into the apostles' very heart. In it, we have the artless outpouring of his unrestrained love and joy and his unallayed joy in his devoted and loyal Philippian friends. It's the most intimate and spontaneous of his letters. And, and for us to really understand and grasp kind of why this is such a heartfelt book that Paul is writing, this letter here, it's important for us to look at a bit of the backstory here. And to find that backstory, we go to Acts chapter 16, because it's on Paul's second missionary journey that Paul finds himself in Philippi. So if you want to go to Acts chapter 16 and kind of follow along with me in looking at some of the backstory of what's taking place here and sort of getting the context into you know, this letter being written here. So like I said, while Paul's on a second missionary journey, as he's making his way out now from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and then he's making his way, he's traveling through Galatia, and, and Paul really wants and has a desire to go into Asia. Not, not uh, you know, Asia as we know it today out east, but Asia right there, uh, you see on the map. And as he's wanting to go to Asia, the, the Spirit's restricting him from going. He's, he's Unable to go, he's like, man, I really want to go to Asia. Now, what I love about Paul is he's not a guy uh, that just kind of goes, oh, well, I guess uh, I'm not able to go and do what I want to do. I might as well just kind of hang out here now and just wait for that to happen. No, he keeps going. What's the next option now? He's like, if I can't go down to Asia, how about I go up north to Bithynia? So Paul's desiring to go to Bithynia. He's thinking, okay, uncharted territory there, let's go. And yet the spirit restricts him again from going to Bithynia. Now, Paul, at this point, like, Many of us probably would be tempted to go, well, okay, I'm just going to pack it up. I'm going to head back home. Things don't seem to be opening up for me. I'm just going to leave. No, he continues on. And he makes his way along Mysia there, and he ends up in Troas. Let's, let's read that here. It's in, it's in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Now, when they'd gone through Pergia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they'd come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood 
and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul, he's restricted to go to Asia. He's restricted by the Spirit to go up to Bithynia. He keeps moving on and being directed. And then he finally ends up there in Charles where he gets this vision of this Macedonian man calling them to come over to Macedonia and visit them, share the gospel. So Paul takes that as a clear word of the Lord. And isn't it great that as we keep moving, it's, it's when we keep moving and, and, and seeking the Lord that oftentimes he begins to lead and direct. I've often said God can't steer a parked car. And sometimes when we think, oh, this is shut down, well, then we're just going to camp out here. But it's in our moving and continuing to walk and seek the Lord that he begins to direct us. And that's what happens with Paul. Ends up in Troas and the Lord begins to direct him, direct him very clear. So he, and he's with Timothy and Silas at this point, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they hop on a boat from Troas. They sail across the Aegean Sea and they land in Neapolis, uh, which is right there in Thrace on their way to Macedonia. Picking it up in verse 11, here's what we read. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So Paul gets his vision. He makes his way now over and he lands in, in Neapolis. And then it's a 10 mile commute up to, to Philippi. And Philippi tells us there in verse 12 that it's the foremost city, which means it's kind of like the prominent city of that place. The first and the most prominent city of that place. Philippi was strategically placed along the Ignatian Way, the great Roman road running some 500 miles from the Adriatic Sea through Thrace to the Bosphorus. And one of those roads, which in the overruling of God, were the utmost use for the message of the gospel. Named after Philip, father of Alexander the Great, the city was refounded in 42 BC by Antony and Octavian, later the Emperor Augustus, as a Roman colony. Its life and constitution were, were accordingly patterned on those of Rome, and its citizens enjoyed Roman citizenship. So Philippi, prominent city, it's the, the, the most, you know, promising Macedonian. It's along the Ignatian Ways, it says, which became a very well-traveled uh, road for commerce and trade, but also just like uh, we read there, so wonderful just in God's sovereign plan. This becomes the way the gospel advances and the Lord is leading Paul now to Philippi where we're gonna see this church being planted and started, the first church in Europe. Aren't you glad for the Lord opening the doors there and leading a man like Paul where we've seen the gospel reach out into the West now and be such a, 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 such a help in just the advancement of the gospel now around the world. So wonderful to see. Now, what's interesting is that when Paul would make his way into the city, what did he always want to do? He always went in the synagogue. 
He always went to the synagogue because he had such a heart for his fellow countrymen, the Jews, and he desired to see them come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so Paul comes to Philippi. Guess what? There's no synagogue there. It's Gentile territory. And, and for uh, a synagogue to be built, they need to have 10 Jewish men in that city. So we see that there's not a, lar- a large Jewish community there. There's no synagogue. So what people would do to go and worship is they'd go out usually into the, the country and the nature and worship God oftentimes by bodies of water. So they come down to the riverside, it tells us there. Isn't that great? Make a good name for a church or something. They come to Riverside, right? Archaeological evidence actually that in Philippi, they've discovered that the name of the first church there was indeed Riverside, just in case you didn't know that. I, I just made that up, but it's biblical. We're biblical, very biblical here. So they go down by the riverside, and of course that brings out just the illusions of, you know, um, uh, all the the work that God had done um, in the Old Testament, delivering Israel out of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea, delivering through the waters, and then, then in the wilderness, the water coming from the rock, and Jesus himself saying, you know, anyone that desires to come after me or come to me, I'll have rivers of living water flowing out of you. So this imagery of water, important. So they're gathering by the riverside and they're worshiping God. And there, Paul goes down to where this, these people are gathering and he meets this woman, Lydia. And Lydia's an interesting woman. She's a, she's a Jew, she's worshiping God, but she doesn't know Jesus fully yet. And she's a businesswoman. She's, she's a dealer in purple, a seller of purple. Most likely, you know, purple clothing. She's like a, a fashionista in a sense here. Okay, this is Lydia. She's on the cover of all the Vogue magazines and such. She's a smart businesswoman. And, and purple was a very uh, expensive commodity to have. It's kind of like a luxury. That's why royalty was always dressed in purple. It came from this insect that was very rare. And, and just, you know, the way that that color came about, it was a, a, a real sign of, of luxury and expense. And so she's a, a, a businesswoman. Uh, she's got a good gig going on dealer in some high fashion and Paul meets her there and he begins to explain more fully the story uh, and the gospel that we're not just worshiping God understand that that Jesus is fully God who came to do the work for us to save us to forgive us of our sin he fills in the story and her heart it says is opened up and she receives salvation so here's the gospel of Jesus Christ taking root now in this very city of Philippi but it doesn't stop right there. As Paul continues to travel around, he begins to be followed by an interesting girl. Let's read on in verse 16. It says this. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So here's a young girl now. She's demon possessed. She's the go-to, you know, 1-800 psychic hotline. She's the girl in the city now. You want to get some, you know, fortune-telling happening. You go to this girl, and she's got quite a racket going on there. Her masters are making a profit off of her. And this girl begins to follow Paul and his companions around. And notice what she says. This girl followed them, and she cried out in verse 17, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Let me just stop right there. That's interesting. She's following them around and she's, a, she's possessed by a demon and yet she's proclaiming these men are servants of the Most High God and they're proclaiming the way of salvation. I, I'm just like, what is happening here? What is going on? 
I, I find this very perplexing. Now, Paul might have been sitting there going, hey, this is great, Lord, thank you. We got some free advertising, some promotion going on. She's doing all the work for us. She's just telling us what we're doing. This is great. She's a, a resident of the city, most likely, so people are listening to her. I, I don't know what's going on exactly. This is an interesting account here. But understand, Paul puts up with it for a few days, but there's a limit on that. And it says there in verse 18 that Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace to the authorities. Let me stop right there. So Paul, after a few days, he's putting up with this. She's telling the truth. But understand something. Paul realizes, man, I cannot be in partnership with the works of darkness. Even though there might be an element of truth, understand that Satan comes as an angel of light. He comes in a way that looks like it's good, wholesome, and true, but he's the father of lies. He's a master deceiver, and Satan, you see, is eventually gonna show his true colors. Paul's looking at the situation going, I can't rely on this. I'm not gonna be working with this. This is of the enemy. And Paul ultimately wants to see this girl delivered, set free, and receive salvation. And so he finally stops this racket going on and he prays and she's delivered, she's set free. Here's now another convert, it would seem, to this new church in Philippi. But her masters aren't none too happy about this. They're quite choked. They're going, man, you just, you just wrecked our business. We were, we were making quite a, you know, some good coin off of this girl. Now we're not gonna be able to profit from her and her divination any longer. So they drag Paul and Silas to the magistrates, to the, to the city officials. And notice what we see happening here. Verse 20, they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods and when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul, after doing this work, he's taken to the officials and they beat them. And they put them in prison. And not only do they put them in a prison, but it says they put them in the stocks. Now you've all had that, you know, picture and what comes to mind of people in the stocks is like, you know, back in the, in the day, they would have that board, you know, and we've all been to places where you get to do that and take those pictures, you know. Look at, I'm in the stocks. You got your head in there, your hands are in People are walking by and they'd be mocking those and then they'd be like, yeah, yeah, laugh it up, oh, ho, oh, you know. And they're just sitting there. But this isn't the idea of what Paul was dealing with in the stocks. It says that they put their feet in the stocks. In other words, what they would do in this time is that they would contort the body into very uncomfortable positions. They had their feet there, limbs over here, and they'd stretch out, you know, ligaments and joints to where it would be a very painful thing. Paul is beaten, he's put in prison, and now he's in the stocks in a very uncomfortable spot. You ever been in those uncomfortable spots before and you're wondering, Lord, why would you allow this? I'm sure Paul is sitting there going, God, was that really you calling us to Macedonia? Where's this man? Where's this guy? We haven't even seen him yet. Where is he? Did we misunderstand this word or, or calling from you? I'm sure Paul is very uncomfortable situation right now. Could be very easily complaining and doubting. But wait, what? look at what we read here. Verse 25. 
but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you, can you believe this? I, 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 I just can't get over the fact that Paul, going through what he's been through, is actually sitting here at midnight praying and singing. They're worshiping God. They're singing those, you know, down by the riverside, down by, they're just worshiping God. They're just having a great time. Unbelievable. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosened. And the keeper of the prison awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew a sword and was about to kill himself. This, this Roman guard, see if anybody escaped under his watch, it would be at his life's expense. He knew that what was inevitable is that his life was gonna be taken from him. He's like, I'm gonna beat them to the punch. I'm just gonna take my own life. But Paul quickly yells out, look at verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. We're all here. We still got a couple more verses to sing in our song. We're not done yet. We haven't gone anywhere. We're still worshiping. It's okay. Put that sword away. We're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. This, this Roman guard is, is trembling, understanding how has this happened? Who are you guys? Who are you guys that suddenly everybody's loosed, but you're still here? This hard military man is trembling at the work of the Lord here. And he brought them out, verse 30, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. This is so wonderful to see. Right here is the beginning of the church in Philippi. A great work was established in this important city and it opened the door to the gospel going into modern day Europe. That was the first church right there in Europe. That's how the book of Philippians begins for us. This is the context, this is the backstory here where the Lord is assembling some business fashion tycoon cover of Vogue magazine, a young demon-possessed, formerly demon-possessed girl, and this ex-military hardened soldier type man brings these people together. If Paul were to draw this up, if Paul were to strategically plan this out, this would not be the church planning dream team that I'm sure he would have in mind. This is not the way that I'm sure he'd be lining things up here to go and plant a church in Philippi, but yet this is exactly what God has. And this is a beautiful story of reconciliation that the gospel brings about, not just of unholy individuals to a holy God, but superficially incompatible people to each other. Because Jesus takes strangers, he takes people that have nothing in common, and he brings them together and he makes them a family that now suddenly have everything in common. This is a wonderful story and a wonderful picture of just the church here that Paul got to be instrumental in and a part of. Philippi was very near and dear 
to Paul. When Paul wrote to the Philippines, it's a very warm letter. He never had to defend his apostleship before them as he often had to do in some of his writings as people were challenging his authority and questioning him. Paul didn't have to do that with the Philippians. There's, there's no major concerns or, or issues that really had to be corrected minus just one little dispute that was going on among a couple of the women in the church. We'll get to that later in chapter four. But what's interesting is that this story of Philippians is bookended with Paul in prison. It starts with him in prison as he goes to Philippi. He's beaten and lands in prison. And now the story kind of concludes with Paul writing to the church from a Roman prison. It's bookended by this place of prison. And yet as we go through this epistle, we're gonna find that it's a letter that's filled with joy. But that's the very theme of Philippians. It's the theme of joy you're going to see Paul emphasizing rejoicing the Lord and the joy of the Lord constantly throughout the letter. Paul's joy was never dependent upon his circumstances, but rather his attitude and his faith in the Lord. Nehemiah 8.10, I love that verse. It says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And there are people today that are, are, are weakened, that are, are down and discouraged because they have failed to just place their joy in the Lord. That joy in the Lord is not just a joy that comes from the Lord, but it's joying in the Lord. It's joying in the things that the Lord takes joy and pleasure in. And when you begin to do that, you will find yourself being strengthened, renewed, and encouraged in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So even from imprisonment now, Paul's attitude was one of joy. Joy is used five times throughout the letter of Philippians. Rejoice is used another 12 times throughout Philippians. You're gonna see those terms coming up on every page, every chapter in the book of Philippians. We're gonna see our ongoing theme through the book of Philippians is that of joy. And for the believer, joy should be so evident in our lives. Joy is much more than a feeling or a condition of happiness. In fact, I would say that we oftentimes confuse joy with happiness, or we use joy and happiness synonymously and interchangeably together. They're very different. Because happiness is based on your circumstances. Happiness is based on your situation. Let's say I, I, I go into a grocery store and I walk in, I end up being their millionth customer and I've just won a shopping spree. Get all my groceries that day free. Woo! Guess what? I'm pretty happy about that. I'm excited. And then as I'm driving home, just full of excitement for what just took place, man. Oh, great. I'm driving home and I'm so excited that my foot is a little bit heavy on that gas pedal. And suddenly I see the all too familiar red and blue in my rear view mirror. I get pulled over and I get a spitting ticket that basically was the same amount of what I just won at that grocery store. <laughs> suddenly my happiness is quickly eluding me. It's quickly fading because it's based on my circumstances. But joy, however, goes beyond your circumstances. Joy is the bigger picture of what you have and who you are ultimately in and through Jesus Christ. That's not depending on the things around you, depending on your circumstances. For the believer, joy should be a constant reality as you walk in the realization that you are a child of God. You're experiencing just that, that blessing of new life in him and you're destined for eternity with Christ. He saved you, forgiven you, and is preparing a place for you. Those 
are things that are not to be taken from you. Joy is a quality we can walk in despite whatever problem or trial or difficulty you might be encountering today. Now, there are certainly certainly things that want to come in and want to rob you of your joy. We have a very real enemy that wants to come and bring discouragement and, and problems in your life. And, and as we've seen that, you know, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but principality spirit uh, powers and principles of darkness. We see that in Ephesians 6. We studied that just recently. And the, 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 the battleground for the enemy is pretty much our mind, where he wants to infiltrate our mind and our thinking. And when we begin to think about things that are before us, the temporal, the physical, man, we begin to fall prey to those things. We begin to get defeated. How we need to protect our mind. Well, the book of Philippians here now gives us great lessons of how we can protect our mind and how we can be those that are walking in joy despite some of these joy robbers wanting to come against us. Here's what we're gonna be looking at as we go through the book of Philippians. First of all, chapter one. We're gonna see the secret of joy in spite of circumstances is the single mind. The key verse there is in chapter one, verse 21, where Paul says there, uh, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had that singleness of mind. They said, everything is about Christ. Whether I live or die, it's about Christ. Whatever happens, it's a win-win for me because I'm in Christ. Singleness of mind. But yet if you're, relying, if you're focused on your circumstances, it could be a joy robber. Secondly, in chapter two, we're gonna see the secret of joy in spite of people. There's another joy robber right there, perhaps at times. People. Not here. I'm talking about when you're gone outside of here. There's no joy robbers here. But, but the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind. The key verse for that is in chapter two, verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Chapter three, the secret of joy in spite of things is the spiritual mind. We go to chapter three, verse eight, where Paul says there, yet I indeed account all things lost for the excellence and the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul said, man, I can, I can glory in a lot of things, but I count them all loss in comparison to the richness of knowing Jesus Christ. So that singleness or that spiritual mind. And then lastly, the secret of joy in spite of worry is the secure mind. We know how much worry and anxiety has plagued people today. How much I can rob you of joy. But here's what Philippians says, chapter four, verse six, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So here now we see very clearly all the ways that we can continue on in joy despite what we might get bombarded against with. We can continue to walk in joy if we follow these things that Paul is laying out for us, that he is living out before us in these things as he's writing here from a prison saying, guys, I am joying in Jesus. I am rejoicing in you. Even though I'm sitting in prison, I am full in Jesus Christ. I have all that I need, all that I want. It's all found in Christ. It's all wrapped up in him. And I don't need to let anything rob me of my joy or rejoicing in him. This is an epistle here, the heart 
a true love letter full of friendship, gratitude, and confidence. The epistle to the Philippians has no doctrines to expound. It has no errors to correct, no issues to refute aside from that dispute of a couple of the ladies there. It has a living Christ to introduce and com- commend to human need. Not a Christ disassociated from life's living, but a Christ experienced and proved in the utmost stress of life. That's the book of Philippians. It's a lovely book here that I'm sure many of us have taken many verses here to heart. And I pray that as we go through this, there'll be many more that we add to that library of memorization in our heart of scriptures that we will say, I want these to take root in my life here today. Well, as you can see, I was hoping to get into, you know, seven verses. (laughs) That didn't, didn't go so well in that first service here as we got into it and so we just got into the first two so let's just let's just go through those here this morning here but i think the backstory is so important to really see again uh where this letter is coming from the the heart behind it here and the relationships that paul has made there in his visit in philippi so it says in verse one of philippians chapter one paul and timothy bond servants of jesus christ to all the saints in christ jesus who are in philippi with the bishop's and overseers, or with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul identifies himself as the author, the writer of this letter, as they would often do in this day. They would start with themselves. That's foreign to us. We always sign off a letter or an email with our name at the end. In this day, as they're unraveling the scroll, the audience would want to know who's this from, so we can kind of get an idea how we're reading this here. So they'd always identify themselves and then move into that greeting, and Paul does that here. Timothy, he mentions, Timothy's not the co-author of this letter. This is strictly from Paul, but he identifies Timothy because he's there with him in Rome at this time. Timothy was a dear brother, a disciple of Paul, and Timothy was with Paul on that second missionary journey as they went to Philippi. I don't know what happened when they were in Philippi when Paul and Silas get put into prison. If Timothy quickly was like, you know what, I just better go check on Lydia, and he like takes off. He's like, I'm just doing the Lord's work. You guys go to prison. I'll tend the sheep. I don't know. Uh, Timothy, we don't hear of him being in prison. Maybe he was, but he's, we don't mention, doesn't mention that. But Timothy knew the people. He had relationships with the people in Philippi, and so Paul sending just that greeting from both him and Timothy here and he writes that they're bond servants now that's an interesting term that's a term that's kind of easy to throw out there you know I'm a bond servant it kind of sounds cool it kind of sounds like ooh, that's kind of really cool or sounds important I'm a bond servant say you think of James Bond like you know ooh, that's kind of a high high level of uh, uh, a person there but a bond servant simply means slave it's the Greek word doulos that's all it means is a slave we like to use that term bond servant oh I'm just serving the Lord but we don't like that word slave too often do we that's a that's kind of a strong hard word that is hard for us to kind of link to ourselves and yet that's exactly what Paul is saying we're slaves but we're slaves of Jesus Christ. We're slaves, we're bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now a bondservant, remember the, the, the story there with a the bondservant because every Jewish male, they would serve as servants and they would bring themselves into slavery for different reasons, whether it's to pay off a debt or they were born uh, into slavery. There's different reasons why, but a Jewish male could not, um, you know, they were required to be set free in the seventh year. It's taken from Exodus chapter 21, where um, if they decided, though, in that seventh year they were allowed to be set free, that servant had a choice. They could choose to say, you know what? 
thank you for my freedom, but I want to choose to continue to serve my master because I've got a good master. He's been good to me. See, oftentimes, the master and the servant developed a great relationship and friendship. The servant would oftentimes be brought in like as family in the home. They were treated well. And there were times where the servant says, you know what? I don't want to leave this place. I've got it good here. I've got a good master. He cares for me. He loves me. I want to commit my life to serving him for the rest of my days. And the servant that decided to do that was then called the bond servant. The master would take them out to the city gate and with an awl would drive that awl through the ear and they would become that bond servant. They were identified and marked now as that servant by choice to their master. That's what Paul is saying here. We're bond servants. We've chosen to serve Jesus Christ. We have found a good master. You know, you'll talk to a lot of people that say, you know what? I don't know if I'm ready for this Christianity stuff yet because I don't know if I'm ready to really surrender my life. You'll hear people say that where they think they've got ownership, possession of their life, and they want to kind of keep doing their thing. But what they fail to realize is that by turning away from the Lord, they're only bringing themselves into greater bondage and slavery. Because every person is going to serve something. Every person is going to be a servant to something, whether it's sin or whether that is serving Jesus Christ. The question is finding that good master to serve. Sin, Satan are not good masters. They bring you into greater bondage. Jesus sets you free. Though we're servants of the Lord, we serve the Lord out of the liberty and the freedom that he's given us. And we make that choice to say, Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. I want to serve you because you are a good master. There's nothing greater out there that I'll find. There's nothing better that I'll find for my life to live for than for you. And Paul has decided we're going to be bond servants. We're going to serve the Lord because there's nothing greater to give my life to than to Jesus Christ for us as well. Understand that living for Christ is not a burden. It's not something that we just kind of, oh, we do. No, uh, Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 says, um, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you give your lives as, as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, right? It's reasonable. It's a, it's a good thing to do. It makes sense because it's through the mercies of God. He's allowed us, he's made it all possible for us to live our lives for him. So Paul, bond servants of Jesus Christ, finding that good master, living surrender to him, rather than bringing yourself in a greater slavery and bondage to another. Paul continues on, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now that word saints, we kind of, you know, we look at that word and, and we get this sort of, mixed up convoluted idea of a saint you know because the catholic church has used this term for you know achieving sainthood this is for the spiritual elite this is for those that have reached that you know next power up level type thing right where it's like oh they've done something good they performed some kind of miracle and now they've reached sainthood you can pray to these people now and we think of saints is like this spiritual elite and we go oh man i'm i'm far from a saint but that term that Paul uses, that word saint, is, is that same word for a holy, hagios, which is simply meaning that you're set apart. You're set apart for Christ. 
That's what a saint truly is. A saint is one that has said, I've given my life to Jesus. I've lived for him. I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering my life to him. That's what a saint is. You're set apart for Christ. And so all of you that are in Christ, that's, I like that what Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus today, if you put your faith in him, guess what? You're a saint. And you can freely go ahead and, and use that with you know, your coworkers, your family members. You can tell them you need to start calling you Saint so-and-so. See how they, see how they respond to that. Maybe not, maybe not the best idea. I'll, I'll rethinking that on the spot. But, but that's the idea. You're a saint today because you're in Christ Jesus. You're set apart for the Lord. But not only are you in Christ Jesus, Paul says to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. Here now we see the dual position of the believer. Not only are they in Christ, but geographically the Lord has them in different places. They were in Philippi. Now, here's the wonderful thing about this. This is a key for remaining joyful in our trials and circumstances because we may face challenges in our earthly status, but there's joy to be found in our spiritual status. Wherever you may be living today, may you be found to be living in Christ in that particular location and situation. You are not bound just by where you are living and the present reality around you. No, we transcend those things in and through Jesus Christ because not only are we in Langley or in Maple Ridge or Abbotsford or Surrey, you are in Christ Jesus. And so may we live in Christ in those places we are and know that whatever you might be going through in those places, man, that does not have to be the final word in your life because you're in Christ Jesus. There's so much more to be living for, so much more that we have our, our hope in and our dependence and confidence in is in Christ Jesus. So there's that dual position of the believer here that's to be lived out. So we see here now how the church has just been growing in Philippi. I think this has brought great comfort to Paul as he's writing the church. He says, he writes to the the saints, but also to the bishops and deacons. So we're seeing the church established. It's been 10 years since Paul, about 10 years since Paul was there on that second missionary journey. 10 years has passed. He's writing, he's seen this church grow. The very, you know, fruit of him going in, sharing the gospel to Lydia, to the demon-possessed girl, to that Roman guard now, this church has begun to grow and they've got a leadership team in place now. They've got, they've got bishops and deacons. Now a bishop was simply just an overseer or the pastor. Those terms are used interchangeably throughout scripture. So this is referring to like the, the overseer, the pastor of the church who's shepherding the flock. That's what a pastor is called to do, right? Shepherd the flock and, and feed the flock to share the word of God. And so for them to do that, you have deacons as well. Deacons are those that come alongside and minister to the, the various practical, physical needs of the body of Christ, of the church. That's what we saw happening in Acts chapter six where the apostles were going, man, we must devote ourselves to the word and we don't have as much time to care for all these things, to, to distribute you know, the needs to people. So they, they prayed and they were given men to appoint uh, as deacons. Stephen was one of those there in Acts chapter six who became the first martyr of the church. So there's deacons that are raised up to care for and serve the needs of the church. And so that's what's taking place in Philippi. These things are all in place. The church is functioning and being fruitful. And Paul is filled with gratitude for them. And he says there in verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul gives his regular greeting. 
In, in the majority of his letters, Paul uses these terms, grace and peace. And those of you that have been veterans of Riverside, Calvary Chapel, you've been through many of our series in the epistles and, and Paul's writings, you're thinking, oh no, are you going to give us that whole grace and peace thing again? And I thought, you know, no, maybe I'd spare you. And I thought, no, I'm not going to spare you. I'm just jumping into it here because this is so good. But these two words, grace and peace, you see, are the common greetings of the day. Grace was the Greek greeting, charis, and peace was the, the popular Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace. And so Paul uses these terms to just kind of say grace and peace to you, but these two terms are more than just a common greeting of the day. These are, and this is, this is the teaching that you, you have to give when you hit these things, these are the Siamese twins of Scripture, and they always go in this order because you cannot know the peace of God unless you first know the grace of God. See, it's by the grace of God by which we might have our sins forgiven and find new life in him. And when we're forgiven, guess what? We're then reconciled to God and experience peace with God. This is a beautiful thing that takes place in the life of the believer here. Experiencing the grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We didn't deserve salvation, but by God's grace, we're brought in that free gift of salvation. And when we understand that we are right with God outside of what I do, it's only through the work of Jesus Christ. Guess what? I just experienced the blessed peace of God. When you think your salvation is dependent on you and your ability or your efforts, your good living, guess what? There's not a lot of room for peace there because you're constantly going, did I mess up? Did I fail? Did I come up short? And guess what? You do. And you lack peace. But when you understand grace, that Jesus has done it all for you, suddenly you get to walk in the blessed peace of God. Peace with God. But it's always in that order. You cannot know the peace that you have with God unless you experience and know that grace of God. And I believe Paul had much more in mind than just the grace that has been extended to us in salvation and much more than just peace with God now. I believe... Paul's saying, man, I want you as believers to experience this on an ongoing basis. I want you to live your lives in that constant awareness of grace and just to have that continued favor of God just pouring over your life. That's what grace is, that favor of God. Just to continue to know that favor of God, but also not just peace with God, but to be walking in that peace of God. The peace of God, like we read in, in Philippians for that will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is what we get to experience as believers in the Lord. This is what Paul is writing here, that you and I, not just those saints in Philippi, but for all of us as believers, would know and truly grasp and live out. Live out that grace and favor of God. Live out that life that just enjoys the peace of God that just fills your heart because we have peace with God through being reconciled to the forgiveness of sins that God accomplished by his grace for us. Now we're a blessed people. We're a people that should be responding always in all things with joy because of the bigger picture that's going on that goes beyond just our present daily struggles and issues. Man, there's so much more at work here for the believer. So much more that we put our hope and trust in. It's in and through Jesus Christ that's done it all for us. So we're gonna wrap up right there. And I just wanna encourage you, if you're listening today, maybe you're watching this uh, at home or uh, you're here with us today, and maybe you 
are sitting here today not truly knowing that peace, the peace with God and the peace of God. Maybe you've been trying to make things happen your own way or you've been one of those people that says, I'm not quite ready to surrender my life to the Lord. Man, I still wanna hold on to some things. And maybe you've been doing that and realizing, man, it's not really helped matters much. In fact, I still feel completely out of peace. It's only through coming to Jesus Christ and accepting him as your Lord and Savior, accepting that forgiveness of sin that you will be able to experience peace, that you'll be able to experience the life that he has for you. That comes through you willingly surrendering your life to Jesus. That comes through you saying, I know that I'm not right with God. And none of us were because of our sin. We were all guilty, separated from God. But God sent Jesus Christ into this world as one of us took on human form to go to the cross and die, pay the penalty for your sin. And what the Bible instructs us to do is simply repent of our sin, to turn away from it and put our trust in Jesus Christ now. And when we do that and we call out to Jesus to forgive us of our sin and to come and be our Lord and Savior, you become a born again, new creation, a child of God. And it's all done by his grace. It's not by your works or by your good living. It's through his grace alone. And you can receive that newness of life in and through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, by simply calling out to Jesus, turning from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that before, I encourage you, I implore you, I ask you, call it to Jesus today. You never know when you'll have another opportunity to do so. And you know that when you do that, when you breathe your last in this life, you enter into eternal life with Jesus Christ. There's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. And if you've done that, if you prayed that prayer today, right where you're at, would you write our church email and let us know? We'd love to share with you if you're here today. And you need to pray that for yourself. You need to be secure in your salvation. Would you come and talk to me after our service? I'd love to share more with you and pray with you as well. Let's do that right now. Lord, we thank you for our time together today. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. Thank you for uh, that grace and peace we've received from you. And you brought us into now just this family of God, new life in you. And we're just so blessed, Lord. And I pray as we go through Philippians here the next few Sundays that you'll continue to remind us of the joy and the blessing we've received in you and through you. And may our joy increase. And may the joy of the Lord be our strength here. We pray in your name. Amen. Worship team, come on up. We're going to close with a song.